Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, March 22nd, um, 2020. A day we probably won't forget. Well, certainly. From a month we won't forget. This period we won't forget. We're, uh, you know, we're hunkering down. We're in the hunkering down mode that has been imposed uh, by the coronavirus. But before we go further on the coronavirus, I just want to think a little bit about your mom, Fleur Abuhoff. Well, the anniversary of her birth would be uh, March 24th. She would be, if she was still with us, 94 on, on March 24th. So, uh, so glad she's not going through this. Yeah, I can't imagine how my parents would have coped with this. But we do, we do miss them. Yes. And, uh, and, and, uh, and we're fortunate. We, we're out here in the country, honestly. And so um, we're having as, um, I don't know, as, as relatively uh, uh, undisturbed time as you can have with respect to the coronavirus. We have plenty of room. Uh, we have a nice place to be. And we have wide open spaces. We, we end up, we're able to take long walks in beautiful surroundings every day. And I do think we benefit from that, don't you? Right. Right. It's like a mental health thing, but it's good exercise, and it's it's very nice. Spending a lot of time together. Yes, not enough time, as far as I'm <laughs> oh, concerned. Gosh. As far as I'm concerned, but you know, you know, they always you hear news reports about lockdowns and people being uh, told to stay within their homes. But the truth is, it never is that way. I mean, uh, when you look at all the measures taken, certainly in New York, New Jersey, whatever. And frankly, even in Milan, then when they go into lockdown, they always say, but get outside and take a long walk if you like and if you can. It's a beneficial thing to do. Keep your social distancing. Right. But, but they don't mean by lockdown, stay within the four walls of your apartment or your house or something. You got to believe. Yeah. You got to believe. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. But you got to believe that uh, in most places, yeah. fresh air is always beneficial. Sure. I mean, so you, you would think you need to do that. I mean, it is the whole thing is peculiar. We're not going to spend a lot of time on coronavirus, but on the other hand, well, you, we actually are. Well, you can't <laughs> ignore it. I mean, it, because it just affects what we're doing. It affects what everybody else is doing. And the truth of the matter is, uh, there's some peculiar behavior out there. But uh, you know, we're either people are either being uh, overly concerned or or. Uh, not concerned enough. It's not. We'll never know. We'll know six months from now whether people were overly cautious or not cautious enough. There's just nobody knows is the short answer to right. the question, and uh, there's just no answer. But what is odd to see things like panic buying in the supermarkets, which we all observed the first day, where everyone, every market said they were out of toilet paper. It didn't make any sense, and uh, out of a lot of things uh, that why would you worry about that? They were out of milk. They were out of uh, water. You know, like a survivalist thing. And uh, I did read an article in the paper in which they asked someone who was in the milk business, uh, why do you think they're out of milk? And uh, the person said, because uh, it's something you can control. People can control uh, shopping for goods, shopping for supermarkets. And it gives them a sense that they're in control of the situation. That they're doing something. They brought home the provisions. But, you know, <laughs> we must have reported two or three times yeah. on this podcast about how nobody drinks milk anymore. All right. So what the heck are they doing with it? Because it turns out they can freeze it. So they can freeze it and not <laughs> drink it then. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, we, I, you know, we're actually going to talk later about dairy restaurants. I should say also at the outset, we're going to talk later about Stephen Sondheim because it's his birthday. What, what, what is his birthday, by the way? What day is it? I thought it was today. I thought yeah. it was the 22nd. 22nd, yeah. I could be wrong. Well, you've been wrong. You told me that the uh, <laughs> the spring equinox... I, was the vernal the, equinox was in the nineteenth, and you were correct about that. But it, you, it and, starts the and, first full and, day, and I said is Friday. I said, uh, "Gee, that's odd because um, it's always the twenty first And you said, "Oh no, it moves around with it, with the uh, the movement of the the planets and the moon and whatever." Turns out the last time was March nineteenth, was over a hundred years ago. But your memory is better than mine, I guess. But <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, well, yeah. my grandmother's uh, birthday, yeah was uh, March 21st. Yeah. And so I sort of always think about her birthday as, you know, one of the first days of spring. Well, I, I, I know that because Mike Francesa's birthday is March 20th, and he swears he's, he was born on the first day of spring. So there's a lot of he people. Mi- he might have been born yeah. on the first day of spring. His year might have been that way. I'm sure it was. So, uh, you know, but this thing of this, going back to panic buying, I mean, you know what's even crazier than, than buying the milk and buying the toilet paper? There was a run... First of all, let me say, let me just put this out as a public announcement, um, that my mother says, as long as you have some old phone books, you're okay in the toilet paper department. And should you have an old Sears and Roebuck catalog, uh, even better. Even better. Uh, Apparently, they used to keep those in the outhouse uh, for, you know, usage. So this is why it's good to live in a big city, because... uh, those phone, phone books are thick. There are a lot of pages, and uh, you're all set for a long well, time. I said I mentioned this to Zeke, who's out in California where supplies are dwindling, and uh, he said, we don't have any phone books. And yeah. I said, well, you know, well, that time hang say, out with some older people. That reminds us when we were in St. Thomas years ago, and, and Granger was uh, three or four years old, or maybe five. No, and, he was like two. Oh, really? And we said, we said, do you have like a little booster seat he could see that sit? And they said, no. Uh, and so that's okay. You can get a phone book. And they look at us oddly and say, how's a phone book going to help? And we insist, no, phone book will be fine. He can sit on the phone book. They bring the phone book. And the phone book is like four pages long. It's St. Thomas. So, <laughs> so he's sitting there. It did not really boost him up They much. were right. Those people at St. Thomas knew their phone books. But we're also, you know, what's even, in my mind, stronger evidence of crazy behavior besides buying milk and toilet paper is there was a run in New York on $100 bills. Uh there's a uh, Bank of uh, America um, a branch in Midtown Manhattan, uh, and they ran out of hundred dollar. People wanted hundred dollar bills, uh, and uh, the same idea it gave them some sense of control. Uh, I don't think they felt that hundred dollar bills would be a great thing to have if it truly was Armageddon. But the idea that they were able to go home with several hundred dollar bills made them feel better about it, and they ran out of them. So, so do you think that's related to this is the apocalypse or no, the just, stock just, market decline? No, it's just psychological. It just makes people feel... There's no foundation no. in anything. They feel they have some cash. They're all set. Okay. Uh, who can change a $100 bill? I mean, yeah, but it's just... <laughs> I know. I'm nervous when I get a 50 out of the machine. Yeah, you know? exactly. What am I going to do with this? Exactly right. i got to buy something really big. Right. So now that you can you know, buy a cup of coffee with a $100 bill, it's good luck. Oh, yeah. So in any event, gyms are closed. Here's a public service now. Gyms are closed. What are you going to do in terms of uh, exercising on your own? Do you have any equipment? I figure you're just home free. <laughs> if, if you can't go to the gym. You're going to uh, pass. You're right. It's, uh, you would think that, yes. Uh, but no. Although I did take a live streamed 
yoga Pilates class the other day. And it turns out they have all, they're keeping that. You can take that class yeah, anytime yeah, they, you they want. Yeah, they recorded it and you yeah, can You write. can do that again and again. But the live aspect was fun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can do that again. And they have more, more live classes. Uh, you'll want to look into that. Um, but uh, so we do a fair bit of working out and I actually have a fair bit of equipment. So I have a little bit of experience about this. The hardest thing to do in terms of uh, working out at home with your own equipment is to get cardiovascular training. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's easy to buy weights, it's easy to buy weight benches, it's easy to buy uh, all kinds of things. A lot of people have treadmills, don't they? Yes. But the, hard, the hardest thing to achieve is keep your and heart on rate on the up. TV, everybody has the bicycles. Right. And those are not nearly as good as a rowing machine. Now, that would be real panic buying. No. No. <laughs> go out and buy a rowing machine. A rowing machine. The yeah, Wall Street Journal. I mean, I, don't yeah. take it my word. Don't take my word for it. An article this week or this weekend in the Wall Street Journal. The rowing machine is the piece of equipment that you need. I know. Talk I about know. panic buying. One of those articles every 10 minutes, and yet it is most often cited as uh, the one thing that everybody just never uses. Well, I that use they it. buy I and use. they push it under their bed yeah. or they hang their clothes well, on first it or of whatever. All, when the Wall Street Journal recommends something, it is an objet d'art. So they have a range of <laughs> rowing machines here. And I had never heard of these brands. There's something called Echelon Row with Nordic Track I have heard of. Hydro and Ergata. Ergata is a $2,000 rowing machine. Oh, Ergata. It's like Ragata. Yeah. But it's Ergata. Exactly oh, right. How clever. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's got a wooden track. It stands up in a way that takes up practically no room at all. I'm showing Tamsin the picture. You'd want this in your living room, even if you didn't row. And um, these other Knowing machines... Knowing you, you would want it in the bedroom. <laughs> um, yes. They have all kinds of uh, fancy designs. And you can uh, look up the Wall Street Journal and, and pull down one of these machines if you want. But I am telling you right now, uh, the rowing machine to get, for our listeners, special offer, is the Concept 2. The original rowing machine, the best rowing machine, and I'll be even more specific, the Model D. And the Model D uh, is a fantastic. It is the real deal. It costs $900, which I know is not nothing, but is much cheaper than anything they have in the Wall Street Journal. And it is a great machine. So for those interested, I'm not going to push it. I'm done with the subject. So it has all kind of computer stuff? It has, but that's not why I'm recommending it. Uh, well, then why are you recommending because it? Because it's a great workout. You could turn, you could take the batteries out, and I do that sometimes. You can take the batteries out. It doesn't make any difference. You just sit there and row, and uh, you'll get a fantastic workout. And if, if you're worried about your form or anything, obviously you can pull up, uh, no surprise, anything on YouTube on Concept2. They have all kinds of demonstrations. Concept2 is, is a website. What? The most boring workout ever. It is not. It's, it's fascinating because there are so many moving pieces and so many ways you can make adjustments to your form. But I, and I know you'd like to dwell on that, but I want to move on to the next subject uh, <laughs> just briefly, which is... Because uh, nobody can row for long. Yeah. In the movie theaters, you know, movie theaters are uh, distressed, they're closed, they've been in tough times, there's some question about whether they're oh, going to reopen. Oh, come on, there's no, no way they can survive this. Well, maybe they can't. I don't know. But what is interesting uh, is that uh, some, uh, you know, everyone's running to Netflix naturally, and we are too. But uh, that's my question. Is the internet going to break? Well, there is a question about that. And I well, should we recommend the movie that we saw that we thought was good? 2007 movie called uh, Zodiac about the Zodiac killer. Uh, apropos of nothing. It's just a really interesting movie with Mark Ruffalo. Might as well. You just did. Thank you. Uh, but there are also you're going to see some first line movies uh, available. And uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, first and foremost, Emma, 
uh, The Invisible Man, The Hunt. All these were just in theaters and now onward. And uh, they are available online now. Um, it costs a little bit. It's not free. It's uh, $20 for 48 hours. But even so, you wouldn't think it's available online. Onward, frankly, is going to be available streaming streaming Disney Plus for no money in just two or three weeks. If you have Disney Plus. If you have Disney Plus, which we do, uh, which is a mixed plus. No, we have people who have it. We have people who have it. And, uh, you know, how many times can you watch Cinderella? So uh, it's, it's, it's fair. But it has that movie. But in any event, keep your eye out. You can, there are some first-run movies. All right. So let's get to a higher tone here. Let's get to the museum update. That's what uh. people want. You have to say ding, well, ding, ding, I mean, ding, it, ding, 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 right. museum update. Yes. Um, well, here's the deal. Yeah. You know, my career is in a shambles mm-hmm. uh, because... N- not uh, as a podcaster. I, no. <laughs> You're just starting as a podcaster. Well, I teach art history. Yes, you know, that career. Face the old to, career. Face to face. Yes. Only my schools are closed, so there's no face to face, and everything has been switched online. Right. Fortunately for us, yes. our tech staff, in other words, Granger and Nico, yes. have returned from Bogota just in the nick of time to help mm-hmm. me out with this transition um, in uh, putting my whole course online. Now, I work online a lot, uh, but uh, now it's going to be exclusively. So that's... Uh, Kind of um, mind-numbing for me. All right. But looking on the and bright side. I have assigned yeah. every term since I started teaching a museum paper. Right. And museums are closed. All right. So that's an issue. Okay. I don't know quite what to do about that yet because, of course, as I always like to say, everything I show my students on the screen, it's not art. Well, the museums will be open soon enough. That's, that's, I, that's maybe not soon enough for people to do a paper, though. Well, so that may be I'm point. going to have to switch gears. But meanwhile, because museums have closed, they are losing scads of money. Well, you know why okay? that is. Headline in they're, the New York they're, Times. They're all fixed costs. Met Museum is preparing for a $100 million dollar loss. Okay, I'm not concerned about that. Um, well, they don't see getting back up to speed till July. That might be, but somebody, David Geffen, is going to write them a check for $500 million. I mean, won't, isn't that what's going to happen? Isn't some huge donor just going to come through? All right, but the point is... Yes, what's the point? That this is the canary in the coal mine yeah. for other museums. Well, that's true, the small museums. Okay, we have smaller museums that just aren't going to be able to uh, weather the storm. Do all the small museums charge money? Um, Does the frick necess- charge money? Not necessarily, but I think a lot of the small ones do. I don't know what you mean by small museum. Does the frick charge money? The frick does charge money. Okay. Okay. Morgan Library? I, you know what? The Those big time places, yeah. I mean, they have endowments. Okay. Okay. And they have their own board that maybe can come through. Right. All right. It's going to be a huge uh, um, impact. But we're talking about like the Tenement Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Uh, it has an endowment, but um, really relies on earned revenue for 75% of its operating costs. Okay, so if it can't earn any revenue, um, that's 
a big deal. Right. So they're not sure uh, whether they can make it. They've already laid off 13 employees, which is about 20%. Um, so this, uh, you know, as we know, it's uh, right. this whole Look, coronavirus we'll, we'll, we'll thing is see. going it's, to impact it's going to be a few weeks many businesses. Right. It's going to probably be a bigger impact for those smaller businesses than for the larger ones. Right. Um, so anyway, back to me. Right. However, the big article, still on museums, in the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, titled, For Big Museums, It's Time to Change, written by the art critic Holland Carter, Cotter, C-O-T-T-E-R. And um, it's really kind of uh, saying that, um, you know, these museums, like the Met, like the Fine Arts Museum of Boston, uh, are going to go through a huge impact. And if they're going to survive, they're going to have to change in many ways. And this is besides this is fiscally. A, this yeah, this is irrespective of the coronavirus, isn't it? Isn't it, apart from that? Yeah, but he's sort of like seizing the opportunity of uh, you know uh, if you're going to taking advantage of the crisis, right? Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Um, in the middle of it is actually supporting the notion of uh, to a large extent. Art historians have always had it wrong um, to supporting this idea. He mentions that earlier this year, Yale University's History of Art Department eliminated a revered, but in the department's view, antiquated undergraduate survey course called Introduction to Art History, Renaissance to the Present. That's sort of what you teach. That is exactly what I teach. <laughs> so Good let's just work say, for yeah, yeah, I'm never going to work for Yale, apparently. Um, and, uh, you know, not everybody was thrilled by this news. All right. So Yale's no longer teaching, you know, Renaissance, so, a survey course of yeah. Renaissance art from the European perspective. Um not everybody agreed. Uh, there was one response uh, in uh, Commentary Magazine. The headline was, Yale's Art Department Commits Suicide. <laughs> um, so, so what does this mean? It's, it, it, it's a step away from Eurocentric art to a broader environment? Is that what they're doing? Right. Well, the idea was that it's an introductory art history course. Yeah. All right. And since it's limited to Western European and American, um, it gives the impression that's that's all the art worth taking seriously. You can't tell people at the beginning, there's other art besides, but this is what we're teaching today? Right. Why not just broaden <laughs> your offerings? Well, <laughs> I mean, people still want to understand this art. Well, isn't this, okay? the, isn't this the art history course everybody was brought up on? Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, it... It is a limited view. Oh no! I mean, you, I don't teach it, saying or even thinking that this is only the only art worth understanding. Course, you can have other courses. Right. I mean, you could offer this one on Friday morning, and you offer your other courses on Thursday, three o'clock, more prime time. You can do a lot of things. But why would you cancel the course? Because undue, you know, reverence I was see. attached I to see. 
these works. Well, so, problem, you know, yeah. I've got to say I'm more in favor of trying to broaden the view. Uh, you know, this is, in some ways, this is, you know, nonsense. You know, I understand museums look like palaces for wealthy people, all right? And they were built, we, we've talked about this before, they were originally built not even with, you know, the great unwashed in mind, you know, not even for, and as an opportunity for everybody to share in the art. They originally built so that the art would be protected from everyday people like you and me to some extent. Okay. But that is not how they exist now. All right. The, the views that gave rise to these collections, um, we shouldn't espouse now. But do we destroy the collections? Do we destroy... Yeah, what are you going to do with it? Uh, yeah. So I, no one should look at uh, Da Vinci or anything like that because... No, 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 no. You should, okay? But uh, you should not uh, go through life uh, believing that uh, Leonardo is the only great artist. Well, or that he's great because he's Italian or that he's great because he's a man. Apparently you shouldn't. And um, of course, it covers it, you know? And uh, so anyway, uh, Cotter uh, lists... A, a bunch of ideas that he feels important uh, for um, Cotter, museums. Cotter is who? The, an art critic from the Times okay. who is writing this article. And he says, you know, embrace truth, um, rethink, rewrite history. Come on. History is rewritten every 10 minutes. History is written by the victors. Okay. Right. So it never represents the truth. Right. What is the truth? This is Tamsin talking, not Cotter talking. This is me talking, right. yes. Okay. okay? Yeah. So it's our truth right now, right. okay? And we should embrace it, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I sense... I don't the... take responsibility for old, white, rich men yeah. uh, who lived 200 years ago and what decisions they made, but I am going to... Uh, you know, even I don't take responsibility. For well, I'm going to use it to my benefit, <laughs> right. Okay. Um, but anyway, and um, well, I sense the frustration in your voice, honey. It's it's pretty clear. Um, you know, and he says redefined expert, and he is, um, you know, embracing the idea that it's not just uh, museum curators who know something about art. It's not fuss- just fusty old well, art historians. That's but not news a week thing. ago, we were talking about, yes, you know, uh, even in the Prado, you can learn from the art handlers, the museum guards. I mean, the museum word- world is already uh, embracing a mm-hmm. lot of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, uh, it's an article worth reading just to get you thinking Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, okay. it's really, he says we shouldn't uh, get too caught up in uh, seeing museums as such, uh, you know, political I forums. I think and yet he sort of is. Yeah, I think people are on to that, too. I mean, okay, it sounds like a New York Times article. Um, yeah, but it's talking about rewriting history. Uh, HBO, just about things you might watch, uh, is is now running, uh, I think it's over six episodes in Orc, uh, which based on The Plot Against America, which is the book by Philip Roth, in which he reimagines history. And how he reimagines it is that Charles Lindbergh, uh, of course, the first man to cross the Atlantic by airplane, the great hero, uh, opposes and prevails over Franklin Roosevelt in uh, an election 
uh, in the uh, 1940. And, uh, Wait a minute. What? Lindbergh beat Roosevelt, Roosevelt in yeah. an election? Yeah, well, he's reimagining history. Oh, oh okay. That. Okay. Right. Wait a minute. What's the name of the book? Yeah, The Plot Against America. Philip the Plot Roth. Against America. Right, Philip Okay. Roth. And so, well, that's the book. It's a novel. And based on that scenario that he posits, he wrote this book in 2004, he plays it out. And so that Lindbergh would be the president. That's right. And uh, Lindbergh uh, had a history of being uh, anti-Semitic and pro-Germany. Uh, and so the way it plays out in history is that instead of opposing Germany in World War II, uh, the U.S. becomes allied with Germany. Uh, and you have things happening in the U.S. that happened in Nazi Germany. That's the horrifying thing about it, and that's the premise of the book. All right, so, and this has become a series? HBO. On HBO? Yeah. But is it I, out now? It's out now. It's, a, it's got a super positive review in the Times. Uh, Do I, we know I, who's in it? Is it anybody we would yeah, care about? Yeah, uh, John Turturro's in it. Uh, and uh, who, who else? Who plays Lindbergh? That I don't know. Uh, they don't tell you that in this article. Because Lindbergh was like a big strapping, yeah. handsome guy. You know, you yeah, and, I, like you and I talked about the book before. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had to quibble with uh, this notion of Lindbergh as a hero. Oh, he, Lindbergh's a definition of hero. No, I think he was a celebrity. Yeah, no, he was a hero. It was a hero. I he mean, was, he, you know, but he was an awful. But you know, that doesn't make any difference. An awful guy. Doesn't make any an difference. An awful guy. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah, he was a hero. He, you might say that he turned out to be different, but he. This is in 1927, I believe, when he crossed the Atlantic or so. And it's like I said to you, John Glenn, you know, was a hero when he came back. They gave a ticker tape parade. It was hero goes down canyon of heroes. That's what that that is. You become a hero when you go out there and you discover North America, South America. Whatever. Vasco da Gama was a hero. So he was a hero. Uh, whether he turned out to be someone who was less than a complete human being is something else. Uh, but you could see it's, it's not an implausible uh, plot point. You can see people being swept away by someone who was had a hero following as a hero and was a demagogue besides. And that's what he was. Well, I, I think it's one thing to uh, fly an airplane and to be very brave about that. Right. It's another thing to, uh, you know... Uh, be a moral example or yes, a leader of the free world. Obviously, but that's that's the point of the and, book. Yeah. But you would have voted for Roosevelt. Listen, what, I, I think... What Roth uh, is positing that a lot of people would have been carried away with Lindbergh. And okay, I, he's most, not wrong. Most of the time our parents were growing up, Lindbergh yeah. was a great hero. And of right. course, he you know there's that in our neck of the woods, yeah. there's the whole story about his the, son being the, kidnapped yeah, sure. um, and uh, killed. And that's why that was a big story, because Lindbergh was a hero. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, then later, when was it, the 70s or 80s, when the um, memoirs of his wife came out? He was revealed in more depth. Oh, people are uh, people have a revisionist view of Lindbergh now. They don't feel the way about him when he landed in the Floyd Bennett Field or something like that. But uh, he was a hero, and it's, it's, a, it's a plausible thing. Look, Look Times you- gives the HBO thing a great review. I'm actually not as interested in the HBO thing as the book itself. I'll probably read it. Um, the, All right, so get back to me. I'll get. Yeah, we'll get back to you. And I, but I'm, I'm recommending it to other people. The book, it's sort of shown a lot of the book, and uh, people say wonderful things about the book. So uh, I'm a Philip Roth fan, so I think I'll read it. Uh, another thing we lost was the uh, NCAA tournament, and uh, that's sort of old news. But there was one interesting article in the Times about that, and that is that uh, a team that you haven't heard of in, in basketball prominent circles for a long, long time. The University of Dayton was one of the top teams in the nation this year, and they were poised to be 
uh, competitors to win the entire NCAA tournament. Really? Yeah. Oh, and I poor, remember poor kids. when I grew up, University of Dayton was a serious basketball team. And apropos of nothing, the Times writes an article about when the University of Dayton was in the national finals game to win the NCAA against UCLA in 1967. And you remember every no. quarter of the game. No, I, what I remember is seeing Dayton play in Madison Square Garden in, in what was called the ECAC tournament. But, but in any event, Dayton was a top team. I remember my dad saying to me, oh, Dayton's here. Dayton's a top team. You know, okay. that's, that's when Bradley was a top team. It, it changes right. over the years. And, um, but what, there's an interesting twist on this story. They have a photograph, which I'm going to show you now, and unfortunately we can't show our listeners. That is the tip-off of, at the beginning of the game. It's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of UCLA jumping against a fellow named Dan Obravik of University of Dayton. And as you can see, Dan Obravik is out-jumping Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and winning the tip. Well, that's amazing. It is amazing. And here's what's amazing about this story. That was the only thing Dayton won in the entire game. Was it because of that guy? No. As I said, that was the only thing that Dayton won. Oh, that was won. the only yes, thing. Yes, they lost everything else. Okay. UCLA won the game easily. Yeah. But that photograph is uh, the most prominent thing in the Dayton that's uh, displayed in the Dayton trophy case. The photo, it's a well-remembered moment in time. Right. Of was their last moment of glory? I, exactly right. Uh, that triumphant tip-off remains, I'm reading from the Times, the most famous photograph in Dayton basketball history. Uh, and what happened was, years later, by coincidence, both Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Obravik uh, contracted cancer, different kinds of cancer. Uh, uh, Jabbar's was treatable. Uh, Obravik... Uh, Obravik's was not. And uh, Kareem Abdul-Zabar actually, who hadn't really kept up with this guy, he had met him this one time. Right. This is many years later. Mm -hmm. uh, wrote him a note um, saying, uh, listen, uh, I heard, uh, heard about your recent battle with cancer. I know you'll find a way to come out on top. Uh, my thoughts and prayers are with you. All the best, Kareem. I mean, this is a guy he hadn't had in contact with for 35 years. Right. And he enclosed the photograph. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Kareem knew about it, <laughs> and of course, well, you never forget when you get beat, right? And they, people like asked that. him. He said, and they they interviewed him later. Uh, Abravik couldn't even respond. He was he was he he saw the note. He was touched by it. They say, but he soon uh, you know succumbed. Succumbed. Yeah. Um, but they say that uh, Jabbar never lost another tip ever, <laughs> and they, they asked him what happened. And he said, uh, well, I don't know. I got distracted. And it looks like the tip was a little bit to his side for me. But, you know, the truth is it's better to, to be gracious than to be competitive. If, you know, if, if that meant that nuts them and it meant that must have Dayton, then, then that's good. So be it. They won something in that game. He's very gracious about it. Yeah. And uh, so it's kind of a, a cute story. And the, uh, uh, the woman who was uh, living with Abravik when she died by now was, you know, in her late 60s. Uh, uh, just was saying she just misses the tournament and of course there's wonderful things to say about Jabbar. So Well, I miss the tournament too. Yeah. Because I do jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. um I'm really falling behind. Right. You know, usually I have a jigsaw puzzle set aside for the tournament. I can be working on that <laughs> and kind of glancing at the game occasionally yeah. and getting the puzzle done. And I you know, is so that uh 
you know, time spent with the NCAAs on the big on the small screen or yeah. whatever we call it is is not a total waste well, of we, time for you me. Can, looking, you know, working on my brain by working on these puzzles. We can stream. We can stream some old games. That, no, that that I think would not uh, engage no. me as much. Um, so instead, we're watching movies and things, and I really sort of have to pay attention, uh, and I can't do my puzzles. So I'm falling behind on we'll the puzzles. Find, I'll find some movies because don't of have the to, lack of NCAA's. Also, attention. my mother usually watches the game. Well, that's a whole other story, and it gives us something to talk about. Yes. Um, so, you know, I know um, I know this is an article that's not great uh, for a podcast. But, uh, but you're it, going to talk about it well, anyway. It's, it's t- entitled the, Inter- the Inheritance, and it's from the magazine section. Well, not the magazine section. It's from the design yeah. magazine uh, that came with the New York Times this weekend. And it's by Michael Snyder, and the subject is the great um, furniture maker, George Nakashima whose studio is not far from where we speak. Uh, And uh, it uh, actually is a photo essay of uh, two of the houses on on his property, the complex where in New Hope, uh, where the furniture was made. He was a great, uh, he was an architect who becomes a furniture crafter maker and makes really beautiful, brilliant uh, furniture. Um, based on a very hands-on aesthetic, a natural aesthetic um, in uh, the New Hope area. And on that, you know, on that site, there are two buildings, the original sort of family homestead and then a nicer building that he builds uh, later. Uh, both are being lived in by his children, who are quite uh, older now, Kevin and uh, Mira. And so it just details how they live and how these... Uh, uh, spaces look. The deal is that Nagashima was a fascinating guy. He was born in Spokane um, in 1905, and then he will uh, in live in New Hope uh, till he dies. I think in about 1990, and um, he starts out as an architect. He is trained at MIT. Mm-hmm. And uh, he works for um, the uh, term tier Czech American architect Antonin Raymond um, all over the world, Japan, uh, India, etc. Um, but uh, when he comes home and gets married uh, in um, 1940, I mean, he ends up... Um, Abandoning architecture in 1941, and shortly after that is interred as a Japanese American um, in the Minidoka internment camp in Idaho, uh, where actually he ends up, as I understand it, uh, learning the craft of furniture making, Hmm. and his whole life changes uh, well, from then on. But isn't it shocking to think of um, incarcerating yeah, an well, American yeah, like well, that yeah. um, because of their well, well, that's nationality? Um, yeah. This, you know, this is something we sort of struggle with in some ways today. Um, but uh, that seems incredibly shocking, nonetheless. Um, you know, I am just a great fan of his beautiful well, work. 
uh, which was... Well, it's too bad you can't show it. I mean, look, we do see a lot of Nakashima furniture around here, uh, around this area of the country. And, and, and yeah. And it shows up on uh, Antiques Roadshow. Right, right. And uh, it, it, what's, one of the things that's interesting about his work, and it was handmade, mm-hmm. and uh, he believed in this, you know, he was not opposed to machinery as a tool, but opposed to the distance it created between the maker and, um, you know, the design and the production. And, uh, you know, this is very different from modernism in general, where we're embracing mechanization Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of mass production of work, and yet having a design aesthetic, even Mm -hmm. though it's mass produced. So, you know, I mean, you got to admit, his work live works, his furniture looks beautiful in your basic... Uh, modernist house okay Um, but uh, you know he really um, he was a lover of wood of trees and would find uh, amazing um, trees to age and um, cut and use to create this furniture his tables uh, often had what's called a free edge uh, that that means it's you know it has the original contours right of uh, the tree itself. So, um, you know, part of the reason I'm... The other interesting thing about it is, I mean, he did do designs for bigger companies like Knoll, uh, K-N-O-L-L, all right? So there is that. But outside of those, his work is almost entirely bespoke, entirely made to order, Mm -hmm. which is interesting how many... um, how much artwork is going on in the world today that is made to order, commissioned in that manner. Um, So that's interesting to me. Also, it was accessible to not just the super wealthy, okay? Because you remember, um, you know, our family friends, um, the Nelsons, actually, you know, bought some, uh, you know, ordered and bought and owned uh, some Nakashima. Uh, furniture as well. I just wanted to end this uh, rambling on the part of me <laughs> about just because I love Nakashima with uh, a little thing that um, when the writer Michael Snyder visits um, the studio and uh, you know is looking at the sort of stockpile of fantastic wood. Uh, that uh, they have there. Mira Nakashima is showing him through, and there are slabs of walnut laid on the concrete floor, their surfaces richly figured. Mira says, when the grain is crazy like this, it means that the tree had an interesting life. Okay. Uh, I don't believe that, but okay. Lots of us. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, are a little crazy. Yeah. Due to our interesting right. lives. Right. Um, okay. So. Okay. So just uh, one or one point before we get to Sondheim, which I do want to talk about for a few minutes, and just a very briefly, um, there's an article about um, dairy restaurants in Manhattan because there was a book written by a fellow named Ben Catchor called The Dairy Restaurant. I would actually like to see that book. All right. Well, maybe we can arrange that. But you know, it, it, I have to say one side effect visual. of coronavirus, we're really eating well, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. 
Well, these are not. It's not about recipes, Tenzin. It's it's about the restaurants and the no, Jewish people and how they we, use these restaurants. We used to go to dairy restaurants. Well, I used in to New go, York City. I used to go with my father to a place called Farm Food, which was in the forties on the east and side. I went with you. Okay. Vegetable right. cutlets at Farm Food. Uh, now I you remember. Know, that's yes. like a precursor. Yeah. To um, you know, uh, veggie burgers. Well, we got to okay? explain what. But a, this was back in the seventies. We haven't explained what a dairy restaurant is. So okay, it, so it, explain it. Okay, so a dairy restaurant is basically uh, no meat, right? So uh, kosher food, you can't eat meat with milk. So if you have a dairy restaurant, there's going to be no meat on the menu. You're going to have things like vegetable cutlets. And you're going to have dishes that do use uh, meat and cheese quite a bit. So um, you have... We uh, eat meat, but we have always loved those restaurants. Right. So they have, We don't always have to let eat. Let me give some examples of the food. So they have potato knishes, they have borscht, they have cheese kreplach. Uh, blintzes. Kasha varnishkas, uh, pierogies, blintzes, uh, buttermilk, pudding, uh, poppy cakes, and farmer's cheese. You don't see farmer's cheese too much anymore. Oh, I used to love baked farmer's cheese. Farmer's cheese is one of the great foods. Is it hard to find these days? I don't know. I don't I, see it. I don't know if we find it out here. We used to eat it fairly regularly at, uh, at it home seemed like it, growing up. It used to be a thing that would be in... Health food restaurants. Right, well, in any event. But now we have healthy food many places. But you know what? Uh, once in a dairy restaurant, I ordered um, bananas and sour cream. Yeah. It was awful. Was it? Well, it was just very, 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 very rich oh, okay. and kind of dry and sweet. But of course, now we, you know, bananas with yogurt all the time yeah. and we think it's pretty normal. Um, the funniest ex- experience I had in a dairy restaurant was when I uh, saw on the menu, oh, it wasn't a dairy restaurant. Was it a dairy restaurant? I can't tell you. Um, stuffed fish. I think I had that. But okay. I, don't, I don't know if it was at a dairy restaurant. It was just a translation of gefilte fish. Yeah, they have gefilte fish at dairy restaurants. Okay. So I said to the waiter, it just said stuffed fish. <laughs> I said, what is the fish stuffed with? And he said... And he just looked at me <laughs> because it's not really a stuffed fish. It's like fish stuffing, yeah. really, because it's more like that's, a that's right. uh, a. Well, they do say croquette or something. He does go to the pains to mention some, uh, I'll say, celebrities loosely phrased, who used to eat at dairy restaurants. One of them is uh, well Trotsky, Le- Leon Trotsky, who, who would not tip. Edward G. Robinson <laughs> uh, frowns Kafka. These are ate at dairy restaurants in New York. Uh, Theodore Bickel, Arthur Miller, Bert Lohr, and Frank. Uh, well, Leonard Bernstein. And Frank Zappa, and he mentioned Frank Zappa as tasting gefilte fish for the first time at the dairy restaurant, and he liked it quite a bit. So what's, too, the, what, what, what's the most famous Frank Zappa vegetable song? I don't, I don't know. What? Call any vegetable. I don't know. News, you don't know that song? No. Because it has that line in the middle of it, rutabaga, rutabaga. Listen, I'm talking about farm food. You're talking about uh, the Frank well, Zappa. I, I know you don't want to talk about this more, but I don't. Trotsky <laughs> got in trouble for not. Tippy well. I know the waiters. They gave him bed. terrible service. Yes, well, he deserved. But it. I forget he had some stupid reason for not tipping. Because he thought it was anti-worker. It didn't give them the proper respect. Oh, so yeah. it's like uh, Danny Meyer's restaurants. Yeah, they he, should get a higher right. hourly raise. Exactly. Wage, not tip. Right. He, he, yeah, maybe he felt that way, but maybe he was just really cheap. Uh, it's possible. So, uh, in any event, let's talk about Sondheim. So it's Sondheim's birthday. You, you, you knew the day. Uh, I didn't know the day. Today. Is it today? I think it's today. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not losing sleep over it. Okay. Well, um... It's his birthday week. We know yeah. that. Yes. Well, uh, the thing about uh, Sondheim is there was a huge tribute in last Sunday's Times. All kinds of articles about it. 
And uh, there were all kinds of performances scheduled to commemorate his birthday, which have been canceled, uh, including the production of Assassins, which is postponed from Classic Stage Company, uh, which is uh, attracting quite a bit of attention. But in any event, the article that stuck out to me, um, and there were many in the Times, was by uh, Jesse Green. And his thesis about Sondheim is this. Um, he says, he literally says, uh, Sondheim is under-acknowledged. You see all these tributes, it's not enough. Nothing's near enough. He's not just, according to Jesse Green, uh, the greatest writer of uh, songs for musicals, uh, or as he puts it, the greatest composer lyricist the U.S. has ever produced. And I think that's pretty much accepted at this point. But that's not it. He claims that Sondheim is a great playwright. And he doesn't get credit for being a playwright. And that is what makes him unique. And that's an interesting thought. And the reason that Jesse Green justifies that is that he says that the songs themselves have a certain dramatic tension and are, and do as much as any amount of dialogue can do in a play to actually enrich the experience. They're filled with nuance. They're filled with ambiguity. And uh, he's, you know, he's, he's a playwright. And, and yet I remembered from Sondheim's books that Sondheim does not fancy himself a playwright. And, and uh, let me just pause for a second, what I mean by Sondheim's books. Again, people looking for something to read. There are two books that Sondheim himself wrote, uh, which are called um, Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat, which are his own analyses of his own musicals, in particular the lyrics that he wrote for his own musicals. And they are fantastic. They are fascinating. But let's just take a step back. Yes. Okay. Because we have some loyal listeners who are not that familiar with Sondheim. Right. You want to just mention some of the musicals? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, he did the lyrics for West Side Story. He wrote Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. He did the lyrics for Gypsy. He wrote Company. Uh, that's music and lyrics. Uh, everything else, music and lyrics. Follies. A little night music. Um, I don't want to miss anything. Uh, Pacific Overture, Sweeney Todd. Merrily We Roll Along, Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, Assassin's Passion. Okay, so and some of these, pretty much anyone who's been to a musical might be familiar with, right. but some you may not be familiar with. And uh, I have to say, growing up, I never heard of Sondheim. Oh, okay. okay. I was completely unaware. Right. And uh, for a while, for a long time, I was very snooty about Sondheim. How so? You know, I said, you know, like Rogers and Hart appealed to me. Right. Okay. And uh, I w the truth is I was just ignorant. I was stupid. Because, yeah. uh, you know, and, and Jesse Green kind of covers that in a way. Yeah, he does. And he says that uh, when you really listen to Sondheim, his lyrics really reflect how we think, you know, and look at life today uh, in a way like no other. Right. And that's true, that ambiguity, that uh, tension that he creates uh, between, you know, your life, your dreams, um, your loves, etc. Beneath the surface, really, the real yeah. things that yeah. people respond, the real part, the real stuff of life. And uh, Sondheim can create a sense of poignance mm -hmm. in me that no other musical can do. Right. Um, and uh, so the more, the older I get, the more I... Just adore Sondheim and feel that his work speaks to me. Well, uh, 
that's interesting. Um, and I agree with that. I, I, I but will... you were onto it before I was. Well, I grew up in New York. I'm a, a Jewish person from New York. It's, 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 it comes with the territory. Sondheim is from Doylestown, yeah, not but, far from Limeport. Yeah, but the, the New York Musical Theater, is, as they like to say, uh, they call the New York Music audience the uh, 900 Jews. They're somehow, that's what Mike Nichols used to call it. Yeah, I have a theater of 900 Jews. So, um, but in any event, uh, yeah, well, I'm glad that uh, you became such a convert. Um, and what Sondheim explains in his book, uh, Finishing the Hat, uh, anticipating perhaps Jesse Green, or obviously Jesse Green hasn't read this, is, and I'm not going to read it now because it's just too long, but he writes beautifully. Uh, he says, you know, he's not a playwright, uh, but what he's writing are playlets. And here's what he means. He said, a playwright can hold your attention for two and a half hours. And there's a certain spacing uh, and flow to that and pace to that and rhythm to that. And he's never mastered that. What he's writing in songs are playlets. He says he can hold people's attention for a short period of time and engage them in a way a playwright does. Because as he says, he does see himself. He says, I am by nature a playwright but I can't write plays. This is literally what he says. Hmm. But I can write playlets and try to convey the kind of things a playwright does in two and a half minutes, in three and a half minutes, in four minutes, in duets, in combination of three or four singers at the same time. That's what I can do. And that's what Jesse Green is responding to. Uh, and that's what makes the song so moving. It's like, and, and he does mention Rogers and Hart. It's like, you know, you might say, oh, he's very clever in the way that Lorenz Hart was clever. He's that guy sitting in the corner of the party. He's got this quip. He's got that remark. You know, they're cute. They're clever. They're funny. That's not what Sondheim's doing. Sondheim is getting beneath the surface of the character, conveying something important about the way we live in a four-minute song. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he's great at. So the example, they actually asked people performers their favorite songs and uh melissa erico actually responded with one that increasingly to my mind is is a song which plays in my head which is from into the woods which is the song no more and i'll just give this as a sample and then we'll close but it, it's a, it, the scene is the baker um and uh, into the woods is a fairy tale in the first act and, you, and if you see a high school production, you see the first act and nothing else. And the second act is the, is more serious. And it's the consequences of the people's actions in the first act. And it's More like real life. More like real life. And so this is deep in the second act. And the baker has now suffered... Uh, there, a series of losses. A series of losses, including loss of his wife. And there is a giant rampaging in the land. And he, he has a child, but he feels he can't even protect the child. And he's ready to give up like his father did. And just basically run away. And in this song... Uh, which he sings with his father. This is what he says in his despair. Uh, I'll just read a few lines, but without the music, obviously, he's, he's giving up. No more giants waging war. Can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives till that happier day arrives? How do you ignore all the witches, all the curses, all the wolves, all the lies, the false hopes, the goodbyes, the reverses, all the wondering what even worse is still in store? All the children, all the giants, no more. And what does his father say? He says, um, running away, go to it. Where did you have in mind? Have to take care unless there's a where you'll only be wandering blind. Just more questions. 
different kind. And that's in one song. Right. So, um, I mean, Sondheim. So, happy great. birthday, Sondheim. Happy birthday, Sondheim. Uh, and, uh, neighbor. That's right, neighbor. <laughs> uh, we love you. We'll and see you uh, next week. Yes, Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. Yes. <laughs>